For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What is happening, gang? We have got a big one for you today on the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Pulling. In today's episode, we take a look at the championship games in the AFC and NFC. We get a Bill's breakdown and thoughts on some of the big plays, big decisions. We get Bill's uh, somewhat intense thought on the officiating in the Bucks packers game and also his thoughts on LaFleur's decision. Then finally, we wrap up Bill's Mafia. We were hoping we were going to get to do this before uh, before a Super Bowl, but instead, it's you know a championship game appearance. Still pretty good where we do a breakdown of Bill's memories from Super Bowl 21 30 years ago in Tampa. So you're going to hear all about wide right, booking hotels, some awesome stories you've never heard before. This is truly a must listen. This is the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Pauling, and this is our Super Bowl 25 memory show and championship game review. My lamp is lit. My lamp is lit. My lamp is lit, and the clock is running. Here we go, gang. All right. Well, it's exciting for us because next week we're going to dust off some new technology. So I know you guys probably don't care about this, but this is our last Paizo show ever. So here we go. All right. Well, this week we've got much, much to discuss. We're going to do kind of a half and half. So a little bit of what everybody loves. We're doing a little chocolate and vanilla this week. We're going to spend the first part of the show, kind of our review of the championship games, get Bill's perspective on what went down on Sunday. And then in something I know everybody's excited about. Out. Uh, Bill's going to give us some memories of a very famous Super Bowl that happened 30 years ago, uh, Super Bowl 25 in Tampa. So without further ado, Bill, let's get into it. I think we're kicking off with the Bills and the Chiefs game. Yes, and this game um, really was pretty cut and dried. Um, on third down, the Chiefs were 6, to, six for 10, 60%. Um, that's more than enough to win any game. The Bills, on the other hand, were 5 for 14, 35.7%. Kudos to Spags and the Chiefs defense. They did a remarkable job. The Chiefs defense, since the fourth quarter of the Cleveland game, is playing lights out. They're, really, they're playing the best football of the year. Um, the Chiefs rushed for 114 yards. Edward, Edwards Hilaire made a, a cameo appearance, appearance, but it was really Williams carrying the, the torch most of the way. 4.6 average per play. That's fine. Bills ran for 129, uh, which is which is really good. Uh, and and I think we said that they would run this particular week. They did not the previous week. Really good game planning. Um, the Chiefs got four sacks. Way 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 too many. You're not going to win. Bills only got one. You don't expect to sack Mahomes, but you don't expect you're the guy to get sacked four times either. Um, passing is kind of an afterthought. 38, uh, 29 for 38 for Kansas City. 
8.3 average, 25 for 48 for the Bills, 4.5 average with one interception. That tells you the story. Um, penalties, uh, interestingly, we'll talk more about this in the other game, 3 for 32 for the Chiefs, 4 for 38 for the Bills, 7 penalties in a championship game. Um, that is not an anomaly. It's by, it's by design, and it stinks. Uh, and we'll talk about it later on. Um, red zone, uh, Chiefs were 5 for 6, 83%. Bills, 2 for 5, 40%. Goal line, 5 for 5 for the Chiefs and 1 for 2 for the Bills. And uh, the field goal kicking was, was basically even. This game was um, close for two and a half quarters. And uh, much has been talked about in terms of the Bills' approach defensively. Um, it was the right approach. The problem is that it's awfully difficult to tackle Hill and awfully difficult to tackle Kelsey after the catch. And that's what the Bills were attempting to do. Uh, right approach. Uh, I wouldn't even call it bad execution. Uh, they gave it all they had. Those two guys just overmatch everybody, and 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 that's essentially what occurred. Um, in terms of offense, um, as I said, the the Chiefs have dialed it up in the last uh, four and a half quarters, uh, and five quarters, I should say, and um, and they were remarkably good blitzing, remarkably good putting uh, the Bills in positions where their offensive line didn't know who to pick up. Uh, they spun the tackles around like they were in turnstiles, and uh, and in the end, probably if the if the Bills are going to go back to the championship game and then advance beyond that, they're going to have to find ways to improve that tackle play. Neither tackle, in my opinion, at this point, is uh, is athletic enough to handle really good rushers, and that made life miserable miserable for Josh. In in addition to the blitzes, which were really creative. And some very, very good man coverage down the field. They doubled digs, and and they were able to single up most everybody else, and uh, and they had a they had a, a, a good day doing it. So um, uh, a, a a great season for the Bills. Um, a valiant try uh, on Sunday, but they were up against a better team who played really, really good football. That's the bottom line. So, Bill, in in the end. Uh, sounds like, and I don't know, and I don't know what one does in a circumstance where you're really just physically overmatched. Well, they were physically overmatched by Kelsey and uh, right, yeah. I mean, I don't mean on every position, yeah. And physically overmatched uh, by the edge rushers and the design by Spags. So um, you know, you, you, the likelihood is. You're going to lose <laughs> when you are, and that's <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. that's the way it worked out. They have some work to do, personnel-wise, uh, before before they're ready to be a serious challenger to the Chiefs. But uh, they're worlds ahead of everybody else in the AFC. So uh, Bills fans should not lose sight of that. 
in that sense, Bill, does it kind of boil down? Does their offseason plan kind of revolve around what we've got to do? When you've got two teams that probably have separated, does it does it really boil down to what they've got to do to climb that mountain and beat the Chiefs and then sort of address, to your point, the tackle position, which will help them obviously elsewhere. But, I mean, what else would you stress, like addressing the, the running game, maybe looking at bringing in another running back? They need a big bell cow running back, um, you know, a uh, uh, Someone of the ilk of Edwards Hilaire, I think. Singletary is a really good change-up back. Uh, he he can he can catch, he can run. He's a very tough. He blocks like hell for a little guy. I mean, that's it's really it's fun to watch him play. Uh, but you need somebody else to to do a lot more heavy lifting, and and maybe that's Moss when he comes back from the injury, or maybe it's somebody else who's. Uh, who's uh, in, in the Edwards-Hilaire case, you know, or even in the Williams uh, mode with the, uh, maybe maybe not quite as much shake and bake as Edwards-Hilaire, but but a, a, a lot of power and a lot of juice and a lot of explosion. And then, you know, figure out who, how you want to play a tackle. And, you know, so you probably can take some weight off some of those guys, uh, work to get their feet a little bit better. Uh, um, they're, they're not bad players, but they, they do get overmatched by speed. So, Bill, when you're, when you're construct, constructing a team, um, as Scott was mentioning, you, you, know, you're, you want to gear up so you can uh, stay in the game with the Chiefs. Um, is there typically um, a difference between what you would need to, to be competitive with the best team in your division versus what you would just build out to be the best team you can be for generally in the league? Well, the Bills are there already. They're one of the, one of the teams that are, that's a genuine Super Bowl contender. There's only six or so of those that every year. So they're one of them. So how do you take the next step? That's, that's the, that's the question. And Sean and, and Brandon may have, a different needs list than than I just outlined, and they know best. Uh, but the but the bottom line is that that I know they know that there's work to be done. I know that for sure. But they're an elite team now, so the question is, how do you get more elite? Right. What's what's the elite of elite? So all right. So this is probably foreshadowing into the the big one of these we're going to talk about. But one sort of in game thing that I thought would be interesting, and this maybe just a strategy question when you're playing a team like the Chiefs, it's so explosive. Knowing that the Chiefs were going to get the ball to start the second half, how tempted would you have been if you were Coach McDermott to go for it on fourth and two from the Kansas City two at the end of the at the end of the first half? Um, well, it, it, uh, that's a good question. It, here's the lead-in. Uh, the Mike Holmgren and Bill Walsh taught me many, many years ago, and Paul Brown too, actually, uh, always take points. And in the playoffs, always, always, always take points. Never leave points on the field because they're too hard to come by. So Sean did the right thing. Uh, interestingly enough, all the magpies who, who, who spend all their time fixating on play calls uh, thought Frank Reich should have done the other thing the previous two, you know, two weeks ago. No, don't kick the field. Don't go for it. Kick the field goal. 
Why is that any different than what happened on Sunday in both cases? It's the answer is it's not. It's it's ignorant people who have no idea how you how you manage a football game, who just want to hear themselves talk. Period. End of story. Because if you're consistent in your belief, if you believe in analytics, if you believe in all the other bromides that these people hand out, which I'm sick to my stomach hearing, uh, then why is Frank wrong for not kicking the field goal? It's what Marv Levy said to me, I don't know how many years ago, 50, 40 years ago. If what you did didn't work, you should have done the other thing. Dismiss the the, the Dismiss the conversation out of hand because it's an inane conversation. Well, I think that's the perfect segue to take us into the Packers and the Bucks. What do you guys think? Good. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we call in the biz a bridge into the next segment. Yeah, exactly. Or, or p- perhaps a segue and with a piece of advice to Scott, tread lightly. <laughs> All right, Bill, what were your big takeaways from Packers Bucks? Because here we go. It's a much more interesting game uh, because um, both these teams uh, were were pretty evenly matched. And again, um, I I don't spend a lot of time listening to commentators and talk shows and things like that because, um, as someone once said to me, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I don't need their help. <laughs> but but the 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 fact of the matter is, at, at this time of the year, you want to do it because if you're with a club, it has an effect on how your team uh, sees things. So you, you should know what's out there. And and, and secondly, in, in a show like this, I like to point out what really happens as opposed to what people decide is a story. And again, the media does a great job. They live in the world of stories. We on the football side live in the real world of what happens on the field. Two almost diametrically opposed things. So understand that that's the underpinning of everything we're talking about here. Um, so in terms of the partic- of the game, this was one where even an advanced scout like myself was 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 fooled into believing that the Packers secondary could cover and clearly they couldn't. So that liability and, and it, it truth be told maybe the Packers people thought they could cover too. I, I don't know. But that liability showed up right from the get-go. I mean three bombs a bomb to open the game and then three bombs in the first half where where one-on-one coverage was beaten. And Bruce Ahrens and, and, and Coach Lefwich and Tom Brady wisely stayed away from Jair Alexander and went at everybody else, and why not? Nobody could cover. So uh, the, the, the Packers are a are defense that's built on man-to-man coverage and they lost the battle right from the get-go. So uh, that that portended bad things, um, and and actually they did a better better job with, with defending the run 
than than I thought they might have. But obviously, if you can't cover down the field and and the other guy's gonna, you know, jack it up and throw it, uh, you, you're going to be on the short end of that equation, and that's exactly what happened. Um, so Brady was uh, twenty six for. Uh, 26 for 36, 280 yards, three TDs, three interceptions, uh, 75.3 quarterback rating. That's a lousy quarterback rating for a, for a championship game. Um, Rodgers, 33 for 48, three TDs, one interception, uh, 346 yards. Um, his was uh, 10.5 average yards per catch, but, 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 but five sacks. And sacks kill you. Sacks kill you. Even a guy like Aaron Rodgers, sacks will kill you. So the Packers' offensive line was dominated, and particularly their tackles, and I know they were missing Bakhtiari, uh, were, were dominated by the, by the Bucks' front. And that's twice it's happened. And, uh, and shame on me uh, and, and, and many other analysts uh, for for not necessarily recognizing that, um, it was that was a a pretty sound whooping, and it's the second time they gave him a sound whooping. So uh, you know when you looked at the first film, you tend to say, well, that's an anomaly; they'll fix it. No, they didn't fix it. Uh, Green Bay rushed uh, sixteen for sixty-seven, four point two average. That's well below what they do. So it's pretty hard to start a you know get a play action game going when when you're doing that, and and they were playing from behind to begin with. Um, they jacked it up a little bit in the second half in the, in in the secondary, uh, where, where where they got the two bounce off interceptions. Their guys were in good position to get them, um, and and then the one was just an awful throw by Tom. He just heaved it up there. Um, but then the offense couldn't do anything with it. So uh, that's equal opportunity football. The defense gave it away in the first half, took it away a little bit in the second half, but the offense couldn't couldn't do anything with it uh, in, in key situations, uh, especially on turnovers. You need to convert turnovers. You have to make the enemy pay for turnovers, and, and they were not able to. Um, Pierre Paul had two sacks. Barrett had three. That's directly related to the tackles and 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 blitz pickup, which which the the uh, the uh, Bucks did a, a a great job with, and and the Bucks passing game was was really efficient, and the, and their run game was really efficient. Fournette ran twelve for fifty five, four point six average. That's five. That's fine. Uh, and and Rojo had ten for sixteen, one point six. It was really Fournette who was carrying the load, but it's it's very clear, very clear, knowing Bruce Aarons and Tom Moore, as I do, and, and I, as I say, I was kicking myself watching the game saying, boy, oh boy, I did a lousy scouting job here because they figured out that nobody in the secondary but Jair Alexander can cover, <laughs> and they were, <laughs> they were bombing away. <laughs> so... Um, and then there were there were three unforgivable, I shouldn't say unforgivable, egregious mistakes that the Packer defense made. The first was 
tactical. At the end of the half with eight, nine seconds, however little time was left, um, in field goal range, one completion puts you in field goal range, and I believe uh, Brady had a timeout. Uh, you play, concede the field goal. What the heck are you doing with one one single safety in center field? And Rogers, uh, excuse me, King, playing a bad technique on a on a speed receiver. That's 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 a coaching mistake, and uh, or a call mistake. Uh, you know, I, I don't know who made the call, and I don't know if if King was supposed to be in that technique or not. But it clearly was was not the right thing to do. What you do there is concede the field goal, play uh, cover two, and rally up and, and, and make sure that they don't score a touchdown. Um, the, and then the two penalties for 12 men on the field are inexcusable. And, and furthermore, in a championship game, my heavens, that's, that, that, you can't have that, period. So how, how, how does that how, is that the coaches not getting the assignments in there fast enough or typically what you know what causes that well it could start with a misread by the coaches upstairs as the personnel in the game or it could be that the other team is smart enough to substitute late or the other team is smart enough to go fast which is what I believe happened. And, and then, uh, in fact, I know it happened because otherwise the Bucks would have been, uh, the Packers would have been allowed to substitute. So the, uh, the Bucks were going fast and, uh, and, and the Pack were trying to get people on the field. You can't do that. Right. You can't do that. You have to be prepared for up-tempo. Yeah. You have to be prepared for up-tempo. Peyton's Especially, actually better yeah. at it than Brady. Brady didn't do it very much in New England, but Peyton's actually very much better at it. But the bottom line is the, the we used to catch people all the time trying to get fat people off or fresh defensive linemen in. And, and you know, you just you have to you have to you have to prepare for that. You have to practice it uh, in Marv Levy's first year in Buffalo. We got two of those penalties back to back in back to back weeks. And he was asked about it in his press conference. And he was, Marv was usually, even after a loss, was relatively genial in his press conferences, certainly very civil and almost never raised his voice. And he, and he raised his voice and, and, and pounded the podium and said, that's my responsibility as the head coach, and it will never happen again. And we practiced it every Saturday, every situation. And we practiced it in two minutes on Friday. And to my knowledge, never did have another one. So. That that you can't have that. Period. End of story. Um, so uh, once again, unfortunately, um, the Packer defense doesn't measure up in a championship game. Uh, they didn't measure up in a different way. Last year, they got the ball run down their throat. This year, uh, it was thrown behind them. Um, but that's life. Uh, Again, great season for the Pack, great season for Aaron Rodgers. Um, they did not protect him uh, as well as they should have. Uh, that a lot may have to do with Bakhtiari's loss there. 
Uh, you know, when you when you lose a, a guy that's ostensibly as good a tackle as there is in the league, that's a huge loss. So, um, you know, I have to find some way to compensate for it, but it's hard against Tampa Bay because they're so creative and they have so many good players up front on defense um, that it's hard for the, it's hard. It is hard to compensate. So um, that that's the luck of the draw. You know, injuries, injuries change everything in football. Defensively, just a poor performance, period. And what about the officiating in that game? <laughs> Yeah, well, let me get let me get the officiating first, and that way my blood pressure will go down, and I'll be a little easier on the on the call <laughs> situation. Yeah. Um, first of all, terribly officiated. They let foul after foul after foul in the secondary go, grabbing shirts, grabbing, uh, hooking people, uh, grabbing extended arms, DPI, defensive holding. Been there, done that. This is 2003 all over again. And ironically <laughs> enough, the early championship game. Uh, I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Yeah, right, I right. said I said then and, and will repeat now. Uh, officials don't officiate a game that way unless they've been instructed to. And, and you don't have to walk into the officials room and say, hey, and say, hey, guys, uh, uh, let everything go today. All you have to do is say, let them play. They get the message. And that's exactly what happened. Who would be saying, let them play? The supervisor. Okay. The supervisor. And he's already made himself clear about clear and obvious. I don't know what the hell clear and obvious is. And he hasn't bothered to tell anybody. But the the bottom line is that someone from on high said, let them play. And 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 John Parry, who's a great official and a great analyst on television, said three weeks ago or two weeks ago in a divisional round, in answer to a question from one of the broadcasters, who said, John, do they call the game differently in the playoffs? And he said, no. The philosophy is if it's a foul in August, it's a foul in January. It's to be called the same way. That is not the philosophy now, and they at least ought to have the courage to admit it. Someone ought to stand up, Riveron or, or whoever else it is, should stand up and say, no, we're going to call it differently in the playoffs. So the coaches and the players know how the game is played. In the game that I'm referring to uh, in 2003, Bill Belichick famously after the game said when asked, uh, why they did all the holding and clutching and grabbing that they did, said quite correctly, by the way, quite correctly, just doing business as business is done. And he was right because they'd been letting it go all year, but not to the extent that they let it go in that game. This is exactly the same thing, exactly the same thing. They've been letting uh, defensive holding uh, they've been letting grabbing at the line of scrimmage, grabbing jerseys go. Mike Pereira made a statement that absolutely caused my hair to curl. He said when watching the pl- the foul that was called, uh, I believe it was on King, if I'm not mistaken, um, at the end of the game, which, which of course ended the game, um, 
Well, they've been allowing the receivers to play through the restriction all day. He made it sound as though they were giving the receivers a break. In fact, just the opposite is true. They were allowing the receivers to be restricted all day. On both teams, by the way. On both teams. But the Bucks were a little more egregious than the Pack. Maybe more successful at it. I don't know. Maybe that's a better way to say it. But they were letting it go. The, the DPI, the grabbing of arms as you're running along an extended arm, a receiver's got an extended arm, and, and a DB with an extended arm has him by the wrist, and you don't make a call? That's disgraceful. That's disgraceful. But if that's the way the league wants the game called, then have the courage to stand up, go on NFL Network and say, this is the way the game is going to be called. We are not calling fouls. They're going to kill each other downfield. We don't care. (laughs) It has to be clear and obvious, which means they knock the guy down. They tackle him. Grabbing shirts is okay. Grabbing wrists are okay. Coming over the top with a tomahawk chuck before the ball gets there is okay. That's a bang-bang play. Admit it. Admit it. So that way the coaches and the players know they'll coach the way you officiate. That's the bottom line. They will do it that way. But if you don't know it's coming, you're at a tremendous disadvantage. So much so that after that game in 03, and I expect the Pack may do the, the very same thing, uh, uh, you know, this coming season, we told our receivers, don't be held. Just do whatever you have to do. And, and, and there is nothing that's out of bounds. Do whatever you have to do. Don't be held. And we got a call midway in the, in the, in, in, in the following season from the, the league office saying, well, you know, you're getting a little too rough. And the, the response was, two words and it wasn't pleasant. Right. So the, the, the you know, you, you reap what you sow. And then, of course, the flag at the end of the game, which came in late, by the way. Very late. Well, late, okay? There is <laughs> no reason for a late flag there. <laughs> There's no reason for that. He had his, he had his jersey and he had his, the under jersey. So there is no reason for that. But the, 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 here's where Pereira's words come into play. Officials officiate what they're told to do. The officials were told, let them play, which means if the degree of restriction, if the receiver looks like he can play through the restriction without a flag being thrown, then don't throw the flag. So they waited to see if the pass was complete. If it was complete, let it go. If it's not complete, throw the flag. That's no way to officiate. A foul is a foul. And, and so that official, to his credit, the back judge, I think, I'm not sure of that, but I think because from the, the way it, where it, from whence it came, um, it, it got religion and said, no, I can't let this go. <laughs> so that would be uh, let him play until you don't. That's exactly right, and that that creates inconsistent officiating and unjust officiating. 
because if one team is allowed to do something all game and doesn't get called, and the other team does just by simple luck of the draw, that's unjust. That's not what the officials are out there to do. They're out there to create a level playing field. Better to let it go. Better to let it go. You let it go all day. Now, the response, there was no response because the official, the, the media is too focused on the fourth down call. But the, the, the fact is, if there was a response, it would have been, oh, well, it was clear and obvious and the others weren't. Okay, I must be blind then. <laughs> you can see pretty well. It, no, it actually would be the reverse. Your, your vision is too good. We can't discern those things, Bill, that you can discern. Anybody can discern it. The broadcasters were talking about it, for goodness sake. That, that's what I mean, yeah. Troy Eggman can discern it. He knows full well what he's looking at. And he commented on it all day. He knew, he knew from the very beginning that it was a let him play day. In fact, he might have even said that. And that's not the way the game should be officiated. You don't officiate differently in the championship game and the Super Bowl or the playoffs than you do during the regular season. That is, I, I'll go to my grave contending that. And there's no justification for it. And as I, I think I've said this on this show in other situations, the idea, that, the excuse that they use in the officiating department is, well, you know, we throw fewer flags in the playoffs because the teams are better. Uh, they don't commit a lot of fouls. Oh, yeah? Take a look at that film. I can't wait. <laughs> I know what I'm going to see, unfortunately. Yeah. Been there, done that. I've been to that movie. <laughs> and you didn't like it. Yeah. This was, this was the sequel. I don't like it to this day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's dive into the media story of the week. Okay. So let's set the stage. It's fourth and eight. Packers have the ball on the eight yard line. And there's about 221, 223 left in the game. And Matt LaFleur makes the decision to kick a field goal. Bill, where do you come down on that decision? Well, first, how many points are the pack behind? The pack are behind eight. So we're behind eight. So you got to get a touchdown and a two point conversion. That's correct. Which, which to set, set the stage as well, they failed on a two point conversion in the third quarter, which kind of put them in the conundrum. Where to your point earlier about Sean McDermott, maybe they were chasing points a little earlier. Well, maybe. I, I, I don't want to. That's a decision that, you know, is, is not germane to this discussion. The, you're eight points behind, a little over two and a half minutes. Um, Brady had a at least a couple of timeouts. I don't know if he had all of them, but he had at least a couple. And the pack had uh, all of theirs, I believe. So you're in a situation where uh, either you kick the field goal, which will put you down five points, and now you're going to, you presumably because you have all your timeouts, you're going to kick off. And if you can give them a, 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 a start on the 25-yard line or better, as it turned out, it was actually better, um, then you can stop the clock three times. So if you can hold them in that situation where they're ostensibly going to be running the ball, 
uh, you can stop the clock three times and get the ball back. There's always the potential of blocking a punt, but you can get the ball back and, uh, and, and go down and score a touchdown to win the game. Touchdown to win the game. Six points wins the game. You're behind five. If you go for it and miss, you're behind eight. And now to tie the game, you have to get a touchdown and a two-point conversion. You still have to stop them. And field position in pro football means very little. Did it mean anything to Tom Brady in the first half, by the way? Did it mean anything to Aaron Rodgers when he threw that famous Hail Mary against Detroit? Field position means nothing with these quarterbacks, except if you're kicking a field goal to win the game, which would not have been the case had you gone for it and missed. So don't tell me that, oh, you're going to give them the ball uh, on the the seven-yard line And it's going to be much tougher for them to run out the clock. Malarkey. There's no evidence whatsoever of that. Malarkey, by the way, is an Irish uh, word that substitutes for a a two-letter word. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Might start with bull. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are animals involved. The idea that if you miss, you're going to give them back the ball in bad field position is simply baloney. Take it off the table. In pro football, it doesn't count. And as it turned out, I think they 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 started the drive uh, on the twelve or thirteen. So it was a matter of five or six yards. So, but they're going to kill the clock. They they're not trying to score. So who the hell cares about field position? That's number one. Number two, um, if you make it, if you go for it and make it, you still have to make the two-point conversion or you end up having to kick a field goal to win the game. Even if you make it, it's hard to make a two-point conversion. Very hard to make a two-point conversion. Despite the fact that field goal kickers missed the extra points because of that crazy rule, it's still easier to kick the 33-yard extra, 32-yard extra point than it is to make a two-point conversion. So statistically speaking, um, you know, you, 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 it's harder to make the two-point conversion. And then finally, um, as I said earlier, in, in playoff football, Strange things happen. The ball bounces crazy ways. you got great players who can make great individual plays. They're the, the best teams are out there. Don't leave points on the field. Don't leave points on the field. That deflates your team to begin with, psychologically. And secondly, you never know what's going to happen. So don't leave points on the field. So. He made the right decision. As Marlevy said, if what you decided to do in that situation didn't work, you should have done the other thing. Why was it any different 
for Frank Reich in the Buffalo game, where he was criticized by the pundits for going for it. Oh, take the points. But now LaFleur is criticized for not doing it. Why? Because all they do is criticize. And by the way, analytics don't enter into this too small a sample size, only one game between the teams, and analytics over the course of a, of a season does not account for the, 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 the people that are in the game, i.e. no Bakhtiari, i.e. Vita Vea for the other team. So take the analytics and shove them. So the bottom line is he did what every football coach should do in that situation, which is take the points. All right, Scott. So, all right. Well, he, okay. So let me, this is stupid fan question time. Cause as I've thought about this, I kind of had a sense that this is how you were going to feel about it. And I think, you know, to me, it's a, there's a, there's two complex issues at play here one there's the sort of media story aspect of you know the the Aaron Rodgers situation and him not putting an Aaron in a situation to achieve that touchdown in that moment hold it stop 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 that's a media story the coach is only concerned about winning the game right Bill that's what I was about to say that's the media story here we don't play for the media we play, in the immortal words of Herm, we play to win the game. That's all that counts. Stories don't matter. Here's the interesting football question. Third quarter, they score. It's 28-23. In that situation, if they don't go for two, which analytics at that point tells you to go to for two, which I don't think I agree with him from a fan perspective because it puts you within a field goal as opposed to being down by five. If at 28-23 you kick the extra point, you get it. You're 28-24. In that situation, it's now 31-24, touchdown and extra point, ties the game. Does that change your decision in that moment? It might. It might depending on whether or not you feel you can count on your defense. But that's creating a hypothetical that didn't exist. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but I'm saying if you want to get into the football thing that I think is the questionable point-chasing decision in this game using kind of your philosophy, I think that that going for it for two at 28-23 – probably is the decision that from a football perspective we should look at a little harder and go is that a completely different game at 28 24 going down the stretch i don't disagree with that yeah that's true but let me let me say one thing about analytics you know if you if you flip a coin nine times and nine times in a row it comes up heads when you go to flip that coin the 10th time it's still a 50-50 chance. Even though, as you looked at all the flips, analytics would tell you it should be 50-50. So, geez, that flip should go that way. Each thing is an independent action, and, and analytics cannot be predictive, even from, a, from a, uh, a logic standpoint, let alone the human variables of who's on the field, what's the weather like, what's the situation. So I, I see no way that anybody could r- rely on 
a, a sample size to tell you what to do and what will work on any one given play, whether to go for two or not go for two. It's impossible that, that it can't be predictive of your success in that situation. I don't I, look, I, I, I'm not close to all 32 teams and I'm, I'm not close to the Packers other than Mark Murphy, who's a friend of mine there, their president. But the teams that I am close to tell me that things haven't changed very much since I was in the league in that the analytics will tell you, which it always has, by the way, it just simply quantifies a larger sample size because of the computer. It will tell you that in their goal line defense, in their two-point defense, we have a mismatch at wide receiver because they're likely to be in man coverage. We have a mismatch against at left tackle if we want to throw the ball. They're likely to be in man coverage if we give them this particular formation, which is what happened in the Buffalo um, uh, uh, Indianapolis game. Um, they got the, the analytics told them what coverage they'd be in on that part of the field. It was it was predictable, and and so Frank went for it. The irony, of course, is that it was the right play that the players just didn't execute. But the fact of the matter is that that's what analytics tell you. The idea that there's this point that, you know, chasing points, and that, that's, that's nonsense. I mean, it, it, yeah, I mean, the, Bill, the other thing, the thing you were just describing is, is scouting. I mean, and yes, you, you, can, you can amplify that now that you have computers and, and all that. But, you know, I mean, but the analytics where the guy stands there with the card on the field and depending on the point differential, you know, it says whether you should go for two or not, that does not reflect anything except theory. Uh, well, it no, it, it, it's not theory. It's a body of work stretched over the course of a long season, which has no relevance to the particular situation that you're in. Yes. Because yes. it doesn't take into account the personnel on the field. Exactly. It doesn't take into account the, the, the status of your players. Is your quarterback hurt? Is he not? Is your running back, your best running back in there? Is he not? It doesn't take wind, right. weather. It doesn't take any of those things into consideration. It's just a mathematical calculation over the course of a long season. That's all. Right. I agree. And all I'm saying is even that mathematical calculation is not actually predictive of what's going to happen in any situation. No, that's correct. It's not. No. But now the the question of how many points you're ahead and how many points you're behind is, is, I mean, you can do that in your head. You don't need analytics to do that, which is why Scott's point of view with with the, with the more, um, the more uh, dispositive call was the, the one to go for two uh, earlier in the game because it put you in a situation where, um, you know, you could have been in a, in a situation where a, a, a touchdown and an extra point um, ties the game, and, and that's, a, that's a different calculation. Yep. Right, now you're in a mess. I mean, that, I think that shows you with chasing points. You, you go from being in a situation that – 
now you've regardless of from a football i mean clearly football decision right decision media decision wrong decision but now you've got a media mess on your hands so it's like you know just how much would you be thinking about from a gm perspective you know this is clearly going to be a ton of off-season media chatter it gives the media something to talk about how worried would you be about that getting into the locker room getting into people's heads and it becoming a thing or is this something that if matt lafleur is really sort of proactive about it could be a rallying cry for the team going into next year i'll give you three words and you'll immediately recognize who said them on to cincinnati <laughs> <laughs> The master, and I'm not saying this tongue-in-cheek, I'm saying it with great reverence, the master of of killing media nonsense, Bill Belichick. Yep. Yep. Don't answer the question. Marv Levy, if if what you did was wrong, you should have done the other thing. Period. We're not talking about it anymore. And you instruct the players to take the same approach. Because there's no point in talking about it. It's, has, it's ancient history. Whether they were right, they're always right anyway. Why get in an argument in the old story? Don't get in an argument with somebody that buys ink by the barrel. Right. Or, or right. airtime, yep. you know, by the millions. Yeah, exactly. Let them, let them say whatever they want to say. It, 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 that doesn't affect you. And, and if, it, if it leaks into the locker room, shame on you. Shame on you. You don't have strong people and strong coaches in a strong organization if, if media nonsense can, can, can affect how you play. Another famous well, ha- Bill Belichick quote, media can't help you when you win and won't help you when you lose. <laughs> Hey, I think somewhere the world's freezing over that when we're talking about 2003, uh, Mr. Polian's doing Mr. Belichick quotes on a podcast. I think the world as we know it is coming to an end. I, ha- I, have, a, I have a world of respect for him. I have a world of respect for him. And, and it grows by the year. <laughs> Believe me, it grows by the year. Very cool. All right, gang. Well, there you have it. So let's dive into something I know a lot of people wanted to do, and I know a lot of you in Bill's Mafia were hoping was going to be a little appetizer in a Super Bowl week. But as we record this, we're 30 years to the day when Bill and the Buffalo Bills would play a Super Bowl in Tampa, Super Bowl 25 against the New York Giants in a world that was in a different kind of war. Bill, give us some of your great Super Bowl memories from Super Bowl 25. Well, there are more than uh, than we can uh, we can uh, talk about on this show. But uh, uh, just to set the stage, uh, President Bush forty one had ordered our Operation Desert Storm, and we were uh, at war in, in Iraq uh, because Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait, and President Bush forty one famously stained, said, "This shall not stand." So the nation was on a war footing. And um, the game happened to be predetermined as one week between the Super Bowl and the championship games, uh, which made it a much different preparation issue. And then all of that was compounded by the fact that U.S. Central Command is located in Tampa, Florida, where the game was being played. 
and and would have been, uh, you know, and could have been a prime target for um, any kind of terrorist activity. So um, and was a, a focal point of the conduct of the war. So the the, the war itself and uh, and and the preparation for the game were sort of intertwined. Um, the the win in the championship game is is the most joyous one you have. It's even better than the Super Bowl uh, because it's it's especially if it's at home. It's in front of your home fans. It's it's your team. Uh, there's none of the hangers-on, the supernumeraries that surround the Super Bowl. There's none of the hype that surrounds the Super Bowl. There's none of the um, you know the kind of circus atmosphere that surrounds the Super Bowl. It's pure football. You, you you've reached the top of the mountain. You have one, uh, or as Coach Levy and I, uh, we with that particular team, uh, we 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 drew the analogy of World War II, um, and said that you know when when you when when we when we made the playoffs, we landed in Normandy, and, and we still had to conquer Paris, uh, and and then when we got to Paris and made it to the. Uh, uh, made it there into the championship game. We said we had two more rivers to cross, and then when we when we finally uh, won the AFC championship, our, our rallying cry was one more river to cross. And uh, so the uh, that joy is is like none other you you feel I think in 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 your career. It, it's it, and it's pure unadulterated joy because you share it with the people you've been with for years and certainly in that season for seven days a week for, for seven months. So it, it's, it's, it's marvelous. Uh, but then we had as an organization and that was my responsibility to get things uh, rolling and make sure that when our team arrived in Tampa, uh, we were ready to prepare. Uh, we had done the previous work uh, on, on both the 49ers and the giants who played in the, in the NFC championship game most of the pundits favored the 49ers. Uh, as usual, they were wrong. The Giants won. And, uh, you know, we, we had – our preparation was good. Uh, we were ready. But we had a lot of work still to do um, in Tampa in order to get a game plan ready. So Marv took the position that we're going to go down. We're going to do nothing but football. We'll, we'll do the bare minimum in terms of cooperation with the media, media which is a little out of character for him. But because of the of the the one week Super Bowl, he just felt that, you know, we had to get ready to play a football game and the other stuff could wait. Um, one of the things that they do in the in the preparation for the Super Bowl is to take the final four teams, meaning the four teams that play in the in the uh, championship game to the site of the Super Bowl, um, you know, the Thursday before the championship game. And they take you through all of the facilities that they'll be using and show you the hotel that you'll be staying in and so on and so forth. So uh, when that took place, um, the, the crew, the, our advanced crew, which is about three people were in Tampa and, and it was a, the Thursday night before the championship game, I think. And I got a call from Billy Munson, our assistant GM, who said, you got to get down here. We got a problem. So I, I, I called Mr. Wilson and said, you know, can I? Can we get a private plane so I can go to Tampa? There's apparently a problem with the hotel, and he said, "Sure, go ahead." So I did, 
now the Raiders were there as well. This was the AFC. They were they were dealing with the NFC was going to do it separately. Um, and uh, Al Locasal, who was known around the league as Little Al, as opposed to Al Davis, who was Big Al, was there representing uh, the uh, the Raiders, whom we were going to play in the championship game. And uh, Little Al had a lot of juice. Number one, he'd been around the league forever since the 1960s, I think. And secondly, he spoke for Al, and everybody knew that. I had no juice whatsoever. I was a brand new, newly minted <laughs> GM stepping on the big stage for the first time. And uh, so uh, my my guys tell me what the problem is. The problem is that they have us staying at a Holiday Inn, which was kind of a 1960s-style Holiday Inn motel. Um, across the street from the West Shore, the Tampa Bay Marriott, West Shore Marriott, which is where every visiting team stayed. In those days, most visiting teams stayed in Marriott's around the country because Sam Huff did, the, uh, did all of the uh, promotional work for Marriott. He was a vice president and worked out a deal for NFL teams to stay at Marriott's all over the country. So everybody stayed at the West Shore Marriott, which is a brand new, beautiful hotel at the time. And uh, and we just assumed that that's where one of the teams would stay and the other would stay at the Hyatt, which is over on the Courtney Campbell Causeway, uh, leading, you know, looking out on the Gulf with both beautiful hotels. So... Um, we get a look at this Holiday Inn, and and and, and it doesn't measure up, and and I'm I'm I don't know what to do. I mean, I'm beside myself, <laughs> and, and they're showing us uh, they're showing us meeting rooms that aren't big enough, and security is a big concern. We can't secure the place, and so on and so forth. So, Little Al says, "No, nah, I'm sorry, this won't do." So there was a representative of the hotel who was who was trying to his best to put a good face on it. And, uh, and, and little Al said, you think we're going to put our team here when they look across the street and see, see the West shore where, where, where they always stay. And, and so the league guy who was there representing the league, who, who does all the, the logistics work for the Super Bowl, said, well, it's not available. So I, I said, why? He said, well, it was booked by the NFL alumni. I said, so the alumni who aren't going to be playing are going to stay in the Marriott and we're going to stay over here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Al said, no, this won't do. So the, the poor guy from the league and the poor guy from the hotel are, are, are just flummoxed. And of course I agreed completely. I said, no, it, it won't work. Um, I said, Al, let, let's think about maybe going to Bradenton or Sarasota let me see if I could call Mr. Steinbrenner, George Steinbrenner, the Yankees owner, had a hotel right on the uh, on the Gulf, uh, opposite the Marriott, uh, opposite the Hyatt Hotel, by the way. So um, I called Mr. Steinbrenner. He was he was I didn't know him then nearly as well as I came to know him, but he was very gracious and took the call. And and I asked him, you know, were there rooms there available for for the AFC team? And he said, No, gee, I'm sorry. He said I put all my American shipbuilding people in there. His, his his company, American Shipbuilding, is based in Tampa, as is the Yankee Spring Training Complex. And um, so I said, I just can't move these people out on short notice. 
So I, I thanked him very much. And, and you know, he, he was very gracious to take the call. So somebody in, in, in one of our groups, it may have been one of the people from the Raiders, said, uh, you know what? There's a Hilton Hotel right by the airport. It's not on the airport grounds, but it's right by the airport. And it's directly between the Bucks facility, which we were going to use, the AFC team was going to use, and, and the stadium. It's, it's a stone's throw. So both Al and I said, let's go. So <laughs> we drove over to the, to, the, to the Hilton Hotel and made a deal on the spot to put the, the, the AFC team in the Hilton Hotel. <laughs> now, the problem was there was no place to put the families. <laughs> so Bill Munson, who was my assistant, said, well, what are we going to do with the families? I said, I don't know. I'll take care of the team. You take care of the families. We'll somehow we'll figure it out. <laughs> <You> already... <laughs> so months being, being Mr. Fixit, who could handle any, any situation at all, said, okay, we'll work this out. And, and we ended up, uh, after getting some really uh, outlandish, and unwanted and untoward pressure from people representing Hugh Culverhouse, the owner of the Tampa Bay Bucks, who was obviously hosting the Super Bowl. We ended up putting the families in that uh, in that uh, Holiday Inn, and the team stayed at the yeah yeah the team stayed in the uh, in the Hilton. Which turned out to be great, by the way. It was the greatest setup you could have because the families were away from the from the uh, from the players. <laughs> um, yeah, and you could just say, "We tried, guys. We tried." <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, the now the, the the thing that fans need to know, and, and and I think they'll be happy to hear, is that. The Super Bowl is the culmination of a lifelong dream for every player, every coach, every staff member. Um, you know, we all at 9 or 10 or 11 dreamed of being in the Super Bowl. When you play in the schoolyard or you play on the street or you play in the backyard, you're always you always playing, the, you know, the score, the winning touchdown in the Super Bowl. So it carries with it a... a an emotional um, cachet that that no other game does. And it doesn't matter how many you've been in. I've been fortunate enough to have teams be in six, and it, it, it never changes. The The whole idea that you're in the in, in the ultimate game is, is, is almost breathtaking. So you have to be careful to make sure that your team recognizes that in the end it's a football game. But you also have to enjoy the moment and, and and be able to share that moment with with your loved ones. So the first thing, you know, you, you think about, and I told our team this in Buffalo, and I, I told every subsequent team I was with, people are going to be coming to you, giving you, offering scads of money for the tickets. Um, keep in mind that, you know, the people you want at this game are the people who helped get you here. Your mother and dad, grandma, grandpa, aunts and uncles, high school coach, college position coach, etc. Um, college teammates, high school teammates. 
And, and, and so George Young and I, who is the general manager of the Giants, talked to one another, which is commonplace. And, and we said, let's ask, let's decide that we're, you know, ask the owners if they'll give each player and, and staff member 20 tickets. So both owners agreed, and, and that's what we did. So they had enough tickets to take care of large groups of family, which was wonderful. Um, and then when we got there, uh, it, it's a tremendously, tremendously uh, scalloped week. I mean, it's just jam-packed with stuff. And so uh, we got there on Monday afternoon, I believe, and Tuesday was media day. Now, today, in this day and age, they won't have it this year because of COVID, but they have something called opening night, which is done on Monday night, um, which, as usual, is overdone and, and overblown and silly. Uh, but the players have to show up and they have to answer silly questions. If you were an animal, what would you be? You know, things, silly stuff <laughs> right, like right. that that has nothing to do with the game. Uh, but it, 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 it adds to the hype, uh, which the league loves. So in this case, it was Tuesday, and uh, Marv was going to stay in the Bucks facility, or the hotel, rather, where we were, uh, we were working um, until the very last minute and was going to go over late um, to take part in a press conference. And he said to me, you take the team from the Bucks facility where they were going to dress in their uniforms and, and, and go across the road to the, um, to, by bus to the stadium and go through the press day. So I said, okay. So off I went, I, you know, chaperoned the team there, made sure everybody got on the right bus and so on and so forth. And, uh, and off we went. So, uh, the, the thing lasts maybe, an hour and a half, I guess. And we went first. There's a protocol about who goes first and who goes last. I, we were the visiting team, I believe. And, uh, and so the Giants went last. We, I, I know I, we were first. I'm sure of that. So uh, the it, it's now, you know, we're probably 15 minutes from the end. And all of a sudden, Denny Lynch, our PR director, comes and grabs me by the arm and, and, and pulls me. He says, Marv's not here. Marv's not here. you you got to do the, the press thing. I said, what are you talking about? Said, Marv's not here. I said, where is Marv? He said, I don't know, but he's not here. <laughs> so <laughs> they said, the league says, you've got to do the press conference. So they shoved me up in this podium, and I'm sitting there, and I'm trying to answer questions coherently. Uh, some of which I could, fortunately, I could answer because Coach and I, Coach Levy and I were so close, we discussed everything that had to do with the game and injuries and all that stuff. So I was able to give at least a coherent uh, press conference. But so then it, it ended and, and Marv never appeared. And so when I got in the car with Denny to go back to uh, the hotel, uh, he said to me, oh, Bill, you, you the media wants to have Commissioner Tagliabu suspend Mar for the game, not coach the game. I said, that's insane. And he gave me the name of some media guys. Oh, yeah, they got a petition going. Marv Levy missed the, missed the Super Bowl media thing. He should be fired. He should, you know, he should be suspended. He should be fined a million dollars. 
I mean, they, they, how, who, how dare Marv Levy not show up for their, their Super Bowl press conference? So <laughs> I said, well, that ain't happening. I guarantee you that. He might get a fine, but he's coaching the game or we're going home. So uh, I got back to the facility. As it turned out, Marv had a driver with, uh, who was assigned to take him, um, who was part of our party, but who didn't know how to get from the Hilton Hotel <laughs> to the stadium. And it's a bit convoluted. So they got lost. And they're wandering around trying to find a way to get to the stadium. <laughs> and by the time they actually got within sight of it, it was long past the time that Marv was supposed to be on the podium. So he said, out of hell with it. Go, let's go back. <laughs> so... <laughs> So the oh man, all hell broke loose. Holy mackerel! So I was on the phone with Commissioner Tagliabue explaining to him what happened, and, and and he was great. He was phenomenal. He said, "Well, there's going to have to be some discipline, but I'll handle it from here. You just tell everybody. You tell Marv to keep working, and uh, and and." You don't need to make any statements. Just tell the have Denny Lynch issue a press release that says the commissioner has has spoken with the Bills and uh, and he will take it from there. So he did, and he ended up finding Marv a hefty sum of money. I can't recall uh, what it was at the moment. I'm not sure it's ever been collected, but uh, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Right. right. Um, but that was it. it that set the tone for the rest of the week. And the next day, you know, when you have press availability, that was Tuesday, I had press availability Wednesday and Thursday uh, and Friday too, I think. Maybe not, but certainly Wednesday and Thursday. Oh, Marv got a grilling. And, and he, he was apologetic and, and, and you know, and, and handled it great. But it, it, you talk about a story, woo, it, the roof blew off. So then, then things got even wackier from there there was there was some um promotional thing that some television network set up with wives players wives and, and it was supposed to be done friday i guess because the wives were arriving the families were arriving thursday and so it comes across my desk and and they say the league wants five wives or whatever so I don't know. I gave it to somebody to handle. I, I was up to my ears and Marv issues and what have you. So um, as it turned out, the giant wives were given limousines to drive to wherever this thing was, was being shot. <laughs> and they gave our wives a, a bus. It wasn't a yellow school bus, but it surely wasn't a limousine. So <laughs> there were complaints. <laughs> so at practice that day, I walked over to Steve Tasker. I, I I knew that his his wife had been involved. I said, "Hey, Steve, tell 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 your wife to apologize for for the for the accommodations." You know, I I didn't know anything about it, and it, it's too bad. But you know, that's the way it goes. And and Steve said to me, "Bill, don't worry about it. Everything will be fine. We're just the clowns and jugglers here, anyway." <laughs> Which I thought was a great line. <laughs> it's a great line. And uh, um, so then uh, on Tuesday, going to press day, uh, 
we took the team from the Bucks facility to uh, to the stadium. And where the Bucks facility is located, you just go up a you go up a street, which is confusing because it's winding. You have to know where you're going, otherwise you're going the other direction. That sounds like a yogiism, but it's true. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> and, and and then you make a quick left turn, and you're on Dale Mabry Boulevard, which is abuts the stadium. It's a big, long four lane main highway that abuts the stadium, and and the stadium. As you make that left turn, the stadium's right in front of you. It looms right there. It's it's an amazing sight. And of course, for the Super Bowl, they decorate the, the the facade of the stadium with the helmet logos of both teams. So I was seated next to Jeff Wright, who then was a young, very young player um, from a small school in Missouri, and uh, you know had had made it in the NFL and was a great nose tackle for us. And uh, but but was we were all going through our first Super Bowl as participants, and. Uh, and as we made the turn, you could see the logos for the first time. And he reached across the aisle and he grabbed me by the wrist and he said, Bill, Bill, look, we're in the Super Bowl. And I thought, wow, you know, you're right, Jeff, we are. It really, that hit home when we saw our logo on the stadium wall. And then, of course, the, the practice week it is goes fast. Uh, the media stuff is not a problem after the first media day. You handle it. They only want to talk to certain players anyway. The rest of the guys read newspapers or books or whatever. They have to be there, but they, you know, very few people talk to them. And then um, Saturday, uh, in those days, you took the team picture on Saturday. Now they do it on Tuesday in conjunction with media day, but you took the team picture on Saturday. So, you put the game uniforms on. You go out to a brisk, brief walkthrough, which is the same one we did every every Saturday, and and then we were going to pose for the team picture. So at home, Marv would always say that Saturday practice was open to to family. So Thanksgiving, for example, Christmas, we would have you know tons of fathers and grandfathers and Uncle Jack and Cousin Joe all come to practice on Saturday morning. Uh, and, t- you know, to get the opportunity to say hello to the other players and talk to Marv and occasionally to me. And it was just a great thing. And, it was, you know, it was so typical, Marv, that, that it, it created that family atmosphere. And when you couple that with the fact that Jim Kelly would open his house after home games to every member of the organization, players, coaches, staff, etc. You know, we had, it was a family. It was a family. So Marv, <clears throat> I said to Marv, do you want to open practice Saturday morning like we normally do it at home? And he said, yeah, I think that's a great idea. So he told the players, same as home, you can bring, uh, you know, close relatives. Uh, and, and, you know, if you have friends here from college, that's fine, but Keep it to a minimum, four or five people. Okay, so use your judgment. That's the way he, he always was with the players. So we did have a large crowd of people there, and they watched the practice. I, I had three friends that I grew up with in the Bronx from the time I was in second grade, all of whom, by the way, were Giant fans. 
<laughs> but they were gonna they were gonna change their allegiance <laughs> that particular Sunday. At least a little. At least they told me they were. Anyway, yeah, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> and, their story, uh, and they're sticking to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and, and so uh, they uh, everybody watched practice, and then we posed for the team picture. And of course, every, there were no cell phones in those days, but lots and lots of people had cameras, many more than I had ever thought, you know, would have them. And and they took pictures of the team picture. And then after it was all over, the team picture was over, instead of leaving the field, each position group wanted to pose with their position coach. And lots of the families wanted to pose with Marv. And so we spent another 45, maybe 50 minutes on the field taking pictures and, and many, many, uh, you know, fathers and grandfathers and uncles came up to me and said, you know, thank you for bringing my son to the bills. It was just so emotional. Uh, I was a little afraid that we were, you know, we were going to leave something on the field. Um, but, but we didn't, we, we played great. Uh, but the, it started a, a tradition for us that I kept up everywhere I went. And so for the two Super Bowls that we were in in Indianapolis, we did the very same thing. But it shows you how the Super Bowl has grown. Um, I'll bet you we had um, maybe, when it's all said and done, 60 players and 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 12 coaches times five, however many that would be, you know, Couple hundred people at practice uh, in in uh, Miami, where there were stands to accommodate the people to come to Saturday practice and take the pictures afterwards. We had fifteen busloads. <laughs> yeah, you, you had to sign up in advance <laughs> in order to in order to get on a bus, and we had to give them bus tickets and all that kind of thing. So. It, 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 it's a tradition that's grown. The Patriots did it a couple of years ago, I think, for the first time, and and that got a lot of press notoriety. Uh, but Bill correctly pointed out that it's it's something that you you, you want to share with the people who help get you there, because it is for those of us in the business, it's the holy grail. It's 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 the highest mountain, uh, you, and and you you always think that you know. Maybe I'll get back, but in the back of your mind, you're saying there might not ever be another one. So uh, you should you, you should enjoy that part of it too, and especially with the people that are close to you. Um, and and so that that's a wonderful experience. And then um, the most emotional one, uh, two one is funny, and the other is is really just plain emotional. Uh, the pregame in those days, Super Bowl twenty five. Um, was uh, an hour and a half before game time because they had the pregame show, you know, all the Falderall for the pregame show, Cirque du Soleil or whoever entertains. So you're out on the field really early. And because of the security, that was the first Super Bowl where they had the kind of security that we're now used to. They told the family, uh, they told the teams, the family buses and you'll have upwards of 50 buses, busloads of, of, of people. You know, the, the teams bring everybody. Uh, and they bring, you know, the players are allowed, you know, 10, 15 family members. So it, it's uh, it, it's a huge crowd. So you'll have, in some cases, 100 buses. Uh, 
um, that will will uh, uh, have family and friends, and they're given special parking and so on. So they they're told to be there really early. So all, all of our family and friends were in their section, um, you know, two hours before game time. So we came out to warm up at about an hour and a half before game time, and everybody. Uh, the whole bill section stood up and started to cheer. I'm not sure the Giants were on the field. I mean, they may have been on the field as well, but you know, you focused on your people anyway, because you're taking in the whole the whole panorama of it. And uh, uh, so, you know, everybody kind of looks up, and and unlike at home or on the road, you know, you can see them. You're, you're because the stadium's empty. You can see your your people and. So everybody blows a kiss to their wife or girlfriend or mom and 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 everybody's cheering and uh so it, it, the the emotion on is 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 palpable i mean you could cut it with a knife um Marvin and I would walk down the tunnel together for the warm up <clears throat> every uh every uh game from the first game of the season to the super bowl and as we walked down the tunnel that day, you know, we'd get to the front and shake each other's hand and wish each other luck. And Marv looked at me and said, it's a long way from Coe College and NYU, isn't it, Bill? <laughs> I said, yes, coach, it sure is. <laughs> and and, and um, so now the warm-up's going on and we're, we're doing seven-on-seven. Seven and, and we got a linebacker, Hal Garner, whose turn it had – had gone through and Hal's about 6'2 and 240. And he was a young player. I think he might've been his rookie year. And he, he finished his, his, his rep and came over and, and put me in his bear hug and lifted me off the ground, probably, you know, two, three feet off the ground. And he's, he's in my face and he's saying, Mr. P, Mr. P, thank you for being here. Thank you for making me a bill. This is the greatest day of my life. <laughs> said, Hal, if you don't put me down, it'll be the last day of my life. <laughs> right. So, and then uh, two really emotional things, and I, forgive me if I get a little choked up when I repeat this, but it's to this day it still resonates. Um, as we drove to the stadium on game day, now you have the police escort with you and you know, the lights flashing and the buses are all decorated and so forth. You go over about three hours before game time. And so we t- turned on to Dale Mabry Boulevard. And it's about a mile to the stadium from the time you make the, the, the chain. There was only one lane for the bus. Every other space on that two-lane side of the street plus the median was filled with Bill fans just waiting for the team to go by. Just... Amazing. And uh, I saw a guy with a sign that said, I can die happy. I've seen the Bills in the Super Bowl. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. And then, of course, uh, Whitney Houston with the National Anthem, uh, which, with the exception, the only one I've ever heard at a public event that comes close to it was Lady Gaga at the, at the uh, inauguration uh this past week but um I-, I was standing you know maybe 25 feet away from her when she sang it and uh it was it was incredible you know the country at war um armed soldiers on the top of the press box SWAT teams uh you know that 
maybe we're taking casualties in, in, in Iraq uh, and, and we're going to play this football game. And her rendition, accompanied by, if I remember correctly, the Tampa Symphony, um, most people, you know, think is one of the great renditions of all time. And, and certainly it's remembered fondly to this day in Buffalo. And uh, people in Buffalo, when they talk about the national anthem, you know, they'll, they'll refer to it as our national anthem, not the country's, but Buffalo's because Whitney Houston sang it in our Super Bowl. Pretty cool. Now, yeah. It didn't end the way we wanted it to, but, uh, but it is a, uh, it, it's an incredible, incredible experience. And, uh, and so you'll see a lot of that emotion. Uh, if you watch the peak game, especially, you'll see a lot of that emotion from the players and coaches. And one thing you need to do, because it is, after all, a football game, is to get them focused. And so when we went in, in Indianapolis, I asked uh, Adam Venetieri, uh, you know, who'd been in three to that point, to stand up and talk about, um, talk about what it was like and then how you had to get yourself focused uh, on, on, on playing the game. And Adam stood up and he said, look, it's, it's marvelous. Um, it is the top of the mountain. But the team that recognizes that it's just another football game first is the one that will win. Don't get caught up in all the excitement. Don't get caught up in all the hype. Focus on your job and your job alone. Because... It's so much better to win than it is to lose, and uh, I, I can attest to that. I'm a, I'm a, I'm an expert on losing Super Bowls. <laughs> so, hey, hey, Bill, um, just expert on getting to Super Bowls. Well, that's for sure. But Bill, just a, one thing I think you should touch on back to '25, because uh, um, and I heard this. I had, as you know, two clients on the team, uh, Mark Kelso and Rick. Tootin, who we sadly lost a few years ago. Uh, but, you know, they talked to me about what happened and the the camaraderie, at how every player went up to Scott Norwood and said, you didn't lose this, you know, this is a, a team thing. And then, uh, you know, that reception they had back in Buffalo. Just describe the team interaction and the reception in Buffalo after you got back after losing the Super Bowl and what happened with Scott Norwood there. Well, I, you know, that field goal, that wide right, was uh, was 47 yards. So it's about two yards outside Scotty's range and uh, and on the right hash mark. So if the ball was going to drift, it was going to drift right. If we'd have had two more yards, um, we, 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 um, there's no question we make it. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll get back to that in a second. Um, our, our inviolate rule in a two-minute drill – was that we uh, we uh, keep the last timeout to get the field goal team on the field. So if we have three timeouts, we're only going to use two during the two-minute drive. So uh, during the two-minute drive, we got a completion to Keith McKellar at midfield, which clearly was going to be replayed. And it was close enough. Now, in those days, they made the presentation in the, in the locker room. So they had brought George Young down to the Giants sideline and me down to the Bill's sideline. And so we were, I was standing probably 15 feet behind Marv. And, uh, and I could see 
that it was going to be replayed. I also saw that Keith made the catch, but but that it was going to be replayed. And but the people a little further down the bench didn't, and and it looked as though the ball might hit the ground. So a, a bunch of people were screaming timeout, timeout, timeout. Jim heard it and assumed that Marv wanted it. And uh, staff people, by the way. And and, and so um, he called the timeout. And the minute he called it, Marv turned around and he had kind of a stream of consciousness moment and said to me, ah, I didn't want that timeout. And I said, yeah, I know but you better give him a play. So he immediately turned right around and, and went over to uh, Ted Marchabroda and, and and began to talk about the play call. And so I went up to Jerry Seaman, who was the referee, who, who was coming over to tell Marv that, that we were out of timeouts. And so I said, Jerry, we get this timeout back, don't we? Because of the replay review. He had announced that it was in replay. And... I was begging and I was hoping that Jerry would misinterpret the rule, <laughs> but, but he didn't. <laughs> he said, no, Bill, you don't get it back. Uh, you called the timeout. The replay was incidental to that. Well, that following spring, they changed the rule. <laughs> yeah. and, and ironically, in the Bills-Colts game, when there was a replay, that replay review on the fumble uh, in the fourth quarter, Sean McDermott had called the timeout in order to get the replay guy to look at it and give him time to look at it. And and he got the timeout back because the replay official buzzed down. So irony of ironies, it affected, yeah. it, it, as Chuck Knox said, it all evens out in the end, but you better last until the end. <laughs> <laughs> so it did even out for the bills, but none yeah. of us were there to be the beneficiary of it. In any event, uh, Marv, they called a draw, I believe. And Marv said to Jim, tell Thurman now he's got to get out of bounds. He can't get um, all, all that's there. He's got to get what he can and get out of bounds because we got to kick the field goal. So he did. The play broke wide, screaming open. And the next day when Marv and I watched the film, I mean, I, I have to admit, I, I, I teared up because I, I think he only had, I believe it was Everson Walls. He only had one guy to beat. I think he might have run it in for a touchdown. But he certainly, he certainly, if he fell down, it would have been a 35-yard field goal. I mean, that's how, that's how, how wide open the play was. And, um, but he couldn't, so he ran out of bounds. and. Uh, and so it was a 47-yard field goal. Had it been 45, we make it. Now, as the ball is snapped, I'm standing there on the sideline, and the ball came off Scotty's foot as, as clean as could be, up in the air, high, no problem with that. And I'm saying, we're world champions. We're world champions. We're world champions. Oh, no, it just slid right at the last moment. It didn't fade at all. It just slid right at the last moment, and it wasn't, three yards wide, as some pundits now claim, it, it, it couldn't have been more than a foot and a half, you know, maybe mm -hmm. two feet wide. It just slid at the last moment. So if it's, uh, you know, if it's 45, he makes it. And, and the history of the Bills is completely changed. But that's life, you know, that's the way it goes.
But uh, uh, Rick is right. Uh, at the end of the game, virtually everybody on the team went to Scotty and said, hey, don't worry about this, kiddo. This is, it's, it's not your fault. You know, we didn't do enough. It's a, we lost. We win as a team. We lost as a team. And then the following day, um, as we were arriving in Buffalo, as we were circling to land, we got a call uh, from City Hall saying that there were thousands of people in Niagara Square who wanted to wanted to greet the team. So we got in the buses and and we went to uh, totally unprepared to do so. Went to uh, City Hall, and Mayor Jimmy Griffin and the county executive welcomed us there and. And, and there were thousands. I mean, Niagara Square, which is a huge uh, plaza that fronts on City Hall and the balcony that overlooks City Hall was filled with people and people were hanging out of the office windows. And it was just an incredible sight. And then when Scotty was introduced, they, they, they chanted for it seemed like a couple of minutes, Scotty, Scotty, Scotty. So, it, you know, that's Buffalo. There's no place like it. Absolutely. There, there, there you go. So, Scott, I think uh, that gives us a good feel for the game. Uh, I think it's time to, to go. What do you say? It's a perfect way to bring perfect way to bring it home. On that is Buffalo. Well, guys, thank you so much for an awesome show. I hope you enjoyed our breakdown of the championship games. I didn't get yelled at too much, which is always a good thing. And then, obviously, some of the Super Bowl <laughs> memories from the Super Bowl thirty years ago. Uh, as always, if you have topics you want us to hit on, we're getting into that season again, guys. Where we're going to head into the off season, we're going to do a bunch of more legacy stuff, deep dives into topic areas you're interested about. So. If you have ideas for shows you want us to cover, not just audible ideas, feel free to hit us up at IF Bill Polian. Uh, we got some exciting things coming here in the next few weeks. Uh, come some different ways you can interact with the show. So get ready for it. Thank you as always, guys. All right. Thanks, Thank everybody. You. Thanks for Stay listening. Stay safe, everybody. Stay sa- exactly. Stay safe. Stay well. the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call clickgranger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done